Welcome to Skim This. It's almost time to give thanks for good food, time with loved ones, and a break from Zoom meetings. But for a lot of us, Thanksgiving can also mean a side of family members sharing news stories they read with a lot of context missing. Don't worry, we'll update you on some of the week's biggest stories, from the Rittenhouse trial verdict to the U.S. dipping into its oil piggy bank, so you can hit the dinner table informed. And what is Thanksgiving without someone talking about money? We'll tell you why your mom is right, that this year's turkey really was pricier than usual, and we'll share what you can do to protect yourself from rising costs. And finally, if the dinner table conversation is getting a little tense, or if you're just looking for a few laughs over a few glasses of wine, we'll tell you about a website you should probably bookmark ASAP. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr, let's skim this. Let's start things off with a few headlines from the week's news and give you the context on why they matter. Starting with... Another Dutch city rocked by discontent. Palpable anger spilling out on the street. With demonstrations in the Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, Denmark and Croatia, as well as Austria. Here's the context. A scary wave of new COVID infections is sweeping across Europe, and some countries are already struggling to keep up. Crowded hospitals in the Netherlands are reportedly transporting patients to Germany, which is saying a lot since German hospitals are also shuffling patients around the country. Cases are surging in Romania, where the main morgue in Bucharest is overflowing. And Austria, along with its neighbors, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Slovenia, are seeing some of the highest rates of new COVID infections anywhere on Earth. The US might have been the epicenter of the pandemic for much of the past year, but now it's looking like it's Europe. In response, some countries are dusting off their pandemic restrictions playbook. This week, Austria reimposed a nationwide lockdown, closing all non-essential shops for everyone, vaccinated or not. Germany is preparing to roll out new measures, barring the unvaxxed from restaurants as well as sports and entertainment venues. And the Netherlands is sticking with rules requiring bars and restaurants to close at 8 p.m., which is pretty brutal. As we saw this week, those policies might be pretty unpopular, but for now, politicians say they're gonna stay in place. The justice minister of the Netherlands has said that while people have a right to protest, the violence seen this week is simply criminal, so expect a tough response if demonstrations continue. Meanwhile, Germany's health minister has responded to these protests by throwing shade, telling citizens that given rising infections, by the end of the winter, Germans will either be vaccinated, cured, or dead. AKA, get on board with our plans or await your fate. Our next headline hits a little closer to home. President Biden is indeed tapping into oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. 50 million barrels. A major move to put a cap on soaring gas prices. Here's the context. Americans have been dealing with rising gas prices in recent months. And this week, faced with calls to do something about it, President Biden dipped into what's essentially America's oil piggy bank. It's called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and it's kind of fascinating. The U.S.'s reserve is stored in four giant underground caverns in Texas and Louisiana, which are filled with hundreds of millions of barrels of oil. And the president has the power to release that oil in an emergency or economic crisis. 
According to the government, it'll take a few weeks for that newly released oil to hit the market, so you probably won't be filling up your car with it until after Thanksgiving. But oil prices are also influenced by news, and prices already dropped in anticipation of Biden's announcement. And that could continue, thanks to the fact that China, India, Japan, and the United Kingdom also announced moves to dip into their oil stashes. So if people at the dinner table keep talking about oil prices, now you know why. And our final headline this week involves an increasing number of Americans saying they're unlikely to ever have children. Here's what's happening. According to Pew Research, 44% of 18 to 49-year-olds who currently don't have kids say they don't plan on it, ever. That's up 7% from the last time Pew did this survey back in 2018. So what's driving this trend? A lot of survey respondents said, honestly, I just don't want kids. Others cited medical reasons like infertility and illness. And then there are financial constraints. Childcare costs continue to go up. Plus, there's still no guarantee of national paid leave to ease the burden on new parents. And when you put all those factors together, it kind of makes sense that America has more of a baby bust on its hands than a baby boom. Hey, Skim This listeners. I'm Bridget Armstrong, and I want to make sure you know about another podcast that I host that you should absolutely hit follow on. It's called Pop Culture with the Skim. Every Tuesday, we go deep on a culture story that you need to know about. You get all caught up on the deets you miss, but you also get the wider context, like whether those Travis Scott lawsuits are going to stick or what's going to happen now that Britney's finally free. This week, we're talking about fast fashion and how it took over your IG and how you can stop buying a new $5 shirt from Sheen every week. You can find Pop Culture with the Skim right here where you're listening to Skim This. Catch you Tuesday. We, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the third On Friday, a jury in Kenosha, Wisconsin, acquitted Kyle Rittenhouse of all five charges against him, including homicide. As a reminder, last year, the then 17-year-old shot and killed two men and injured a third at a Black Lives Matter protest sparked by the police shooting of Jacob Blake. Rittenhouse had traveled across state lines with an AR-15-style rifle and said his goal was to protect businesses and provide medical aid during the protest. Rittenhouse's defense team argued he was acting in self-defense and that the people he killed or injured had posed a threat to him. Prosecutors, meanwhile, argued that it was Rittenhouse who provoked the violence and was an active threat to others. This case may have divided the country, but it didn't divide the jury, who unanimously said Rittenhouse can walk free. And while this is one trial of one person, a lot of people are drawing bigger conclusions about what it means for America and the justice system. For one, this trial puts racial disparities on display. The verdict has a lot of people calling out the unequal ways people of color are treated in the justice system compared to white people. For instance, there's a video of police handing Rittenhouse a water bottle and thanking him for being there, which has a lot of people asking whether an armed black man on the same streets would have been shown the same respect by law enforcement and the justice system. Studies have shown that black men receive sentences that are, on average, about 20% longer than white men for the same crime and are also disproportionately stopped, arrested, and killed by police. The other issues this trial has brought to light are around self-defense and gun rights. 
That's because the jury in Rittenhouse's trial wasn't there to determine if he killed two people, but just whether he was acting in self-defense. And if he was, the rest kind of didn't matter, at least in the eyes of the law. To learn more about how self-defense arguments play out in courtrooms, we called up... Cheryl Bader. I teach at Fordham Law School. I'm an associate professor of clinical law. Bader told us, in order to evaluate whether self-defense was appropriately used, juries look at the moment violence occurred. But what's often missing in those evaluations of self-defense are the larger pieces of context, like where the violence happened or what kind of gun was used. So self-defense relies upon this notion of the reasonable person and whether the reasonable person was in fear. And so normally we look at that moment when they act, when they fire their shot. So here, the defense was really trying to narrow that moment. We saw the defense showing clips of the moment that a victim would try to take away Rittenhouse's gun. But everything that preceded that, that wasn't included in what constitutes reasonableness. So is it reasonable to bring an assault rifle to a rally and to say, I'm a medic, but I'm not bringing my medic bag. I'm just bringing an assault rifle. And there's one type of self-defense law that's come under the microscope recently, stand your ground laws. At least 30 states have stand your ground laws, which allow people to use deadly force without first attempting to remove themselves from a dangerous situation. Stand your ground laws have become the subject of a lot of controversy because they often involve racial violence, like in the fatal shooting of Trayvon Martin in 2012. There are a lot of racial implications because self-defense is based on fear. And social science research on implicit bias shows that white people tend to see images of Black people as being more violent and more aggressive. And therefore, they're going to tend to claim that they're in fear and will react to that fear. Wisconsin, where Rittenhouse was on trial, doesn't have a formal stand-your-ground law, but it does allow for people to use deadly force in moments where they believe they're being threatened. Wisconsin, like almost every state, has a version of an open carry law, which is what allowed Rittenhouse and others to arm themselves and enter a protest. Well, I think the open carry laws have a big impact on self-defense because rather than this reasonable person standard, it becomes a reasonable person who's carrying a weapon. And so when you bring a weapon to a public space, it should be reasonably foreseeable that somebody is going to try to wrest that gun from you to protect other people. But yet, if you are allowed under the law to carry that gun, then that act of carrying the gun won't be seen as an aggressive act. Besides people being able to carry a gun when and where they want, the number of gun owners is also soaring. According to the FBI, last year, over 39 million firearm background checks were conducted, which is over 10 million more than the year before. Now, some experts and commentators are saying, when you combine an increase in gun ownership with the ability to openly carry a gun and legal protection to kill to defend yourself, we could see more dangerous scenarios in the future, particularly in states with a lot of political divisions. 
I think that unfortunately might see a transformation in the law around self-defense, right? With open carry laws, with laws that allow citizens to make citizen arrests, you're going to see a potential Wild West environment, right? Where vigilante justice is, quote unquote, justified as self-defense. I think we might also see a chilling of people's First Amendment rights because people may be fearful of going to rallies, knowing that people have open carry and will be carrying guns and they could use those guns against them and then claim self-defense. The debate over gun rights and whether everyday citizens should have the ability to enforce the law themselves is also happening in another high-profile trial in Georgia. Three white men are on trial for murder for the 2020 fatal shooting of Ahmaud Arbery, a black man. Both these cases raise issues around vigilante justice and both these cases raise issues around what is the appropriate standard for self-defense? Who can claim self-defense? Like Rittenhouse, the three men on trial are also claiming self-defense, while the prosecution is arguing these men who believed Arbery was breaking into a house tried to enforce the law, even though that isn't their job and there was no evidence to suggest Arbery was breaking the law in the first place. The jury is in deliberations right now in that trial. And as the country watches to see whether gun rights advocates will be handed another win, Bader fears not only could we see an increase in vigilante justice, but we could also see further divisions in our culture. We have this very gun-loving culture. And I think people are more afraid of having their gun taken from them, both literally and figuratively, than any other fear that we may have seen in these cases. I think as we see this sort of division within society around guns, we're actually going to see greater violence, that there's this sort of myth that's perpetuated of sort of the good guy with a gun. And I think we see that play out in both the Rittenhouse case and, you know, potentially in the Aubrey case. And it's a very disturbing trend. This is the 373rd episode of Skim This. That's a lot. And for those of you who've been skimming the news with us for a while, we wanted to follow up on a few stories from recent episodes, keeping the context brief and focusing on what's new. Starting with a story we told you about last week about Chinese tennis player Peng Shui, who hadn't been seen publicly after accusing a top Chinese official of sexual assault. Peng's disappearance had people using the hashtag WhereIsPengShui to raise awareness, including Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams. After weeks of global concern, on Sunday, Peng Shui spoke with the president of the Olympic Committee on a video call. The call, which is apparently 30 minutes long, is reportedly Peng's first known contact with officials outside of China since her allegations earlier this month. The IOC claims Peng said she's safe and well and wants privacy. Not everybody's convinced she's totally okay. The Women's Tennis Association, for one, says it wants to see proof she's safe and able to speak freely. And this story has turned the spotlight back onto China ahead of the 2022 Winter Olympics. Activists had already criticized the Olympic Committee for letting China host, and have said China's track record of human rights violations should disqualify them from hosting. And when you add in a mysterious athlete's disappearance and a serious allegation of sexual assault by a Chinese official, calls for countries to boycott the games have only grown louder. And President Biden seems to be listening. 
Last week, he said that the U.S. would consider a, quote, diplomatic boycott of the games. That would still allow athletes to compete, but no U.S. officials would be in attendance. Whether that happens is still TBD, but one thing's for sure, this February, athletes might not be the only ones fighting it out. The next thing we're following up on are those labor strikes we told you about last month. After being fed up with pandemic working conditions and safety issues, thousands of workers, from healthcare workers to the people making cereal at Kellogg's, went on strike around October. October even got dubbed Striketober. Now, one of the biggest strikes that experts had their eye on has finally come to a conclusion. This is a massive win for those John Deere employees. They waited it out for a month. Thousands of unionized workers at John Deere had demanded better hours, pay, and benefits. And last week, they reached an agreement with the company for better contracts. Some experts believe the conclusion of this strike shows just how powerful workers are right now, and that unions may be gaining power after decades of shrinking support. Not to mention, other corporations are now coming to the negotiating table. Healthcare giant Kaiser just narrowly avoided 32,000 employees walking out by reaching a deal with them. And Kellogg's is set to resume talks with its striking employees this week. And the final thing we're following up on is the human toll of America's drug problem during the pandemic. The CDC is sounding the alarm about a record number of deaths in America from drug overdoses. More than 100,000 people have died of drug overdoses. That is a 30% increase from the year before and an all-time high. Drug overdose is now the seventh leading cause of death in the U.S., outnumbering deaths caused by car crashes, guns, and diabetes. Most of these overdose deaths are due to opioids, and specifically fentanyl, which can be up to 50 times stronger than heroin. For the past couple of years, Mexican cartels have been making fentanyl and methamphetamines, which are cheaper to produce than other opioids. Those drugs have become increasingly available in the U.S., and after hitting the East Coast first, they've now become widespread across the country. The pandemic is also complicating things. The number of people dealing with mental health issues has increased, and some people struggling with substance abuse were left without access to support services or treatment facilities. Experts say to stop the rise in overdose deaths, access to rehab centers and treatment programs needs to improve, as does access to Narcan or Naloxone, a drug that can reverse an opioid overdose. The White House is hoping to change some of that. Last week, it released a draft law that states can pass to improve access to Naloxone and fentanyl test strips. But some experts say that alone won't solve this, and that until long-term addiction support and recovery programs are as easy to access as drugs, this problem won't go away. It's time to talk about inflation. Inflation is at its highest rate in 31 years. Everyday Americans are getting squeezed by higher prices. Groceries, rent, utilities, furniture, gas, all of it. Unfortunately, the numbers are all moving in the wrong direction. Consumer prices were up by... You're not losing your mind. This year's Thanksgiving grocery shop was pricier than it normally is. According to one report from the Farm Bureau, the cost of a Thanksgiving dinner for 10 people is up 14% over last year. And it's not just the turkey. The price of pretty much everything seems higher than last year. Considering awkward money conversations might be on this year's Thanksgiving menu, here's what you need to know about inflation. Let's start with a quick definition. Inflation refers to the general increase in the cost of everyday items, which leads to a gradual decrease in what your money gets you. 
Right now, inflation is up over 6% since this time last year. That's the biggest one-year jump since 1990. And even though consumers may be the ones who feel inflation's effects every day, economists also pay close attention. That's because a little bit of inflation is good and it's a sign of a healthy economy. For instance, moderate inflation means prices are always increasing, so there's little reason to wait to make a purchase. But it's kind of a slippery slope, because if inflation gets too high, the Federal Reserve might have to step in to raise interest rates and slow down the economy in the process. Cue a recession. But let's go back to the present. By now, we've all seen higher prices on shelves, thanks to labor shortages and supply chain issues. Besides raising prices, companies can respond to inflation in other ways. Meet shrinkflation. That's when you pay the same you've always paid for coffee or a bag of chips. But instead of getting the amount you normally do, you get a smaller cup or fewer chips. Don't believe us? Consumer advocates say, since the start of the pandemic, bags of Doritos for sale at stores like Target have shrunk by half an ounce, while packages of Wheat Thins have gone from 16 ounces to 14. Manufacturers are hoping that price-conscious shoppers think, awesome, this is the same price as always, even though they're walking home with something that weighs less than it used to. So that's shrinkflation. There's also skimpflation. That's when companies cut corners on labor, services, and your experience without dropping prices. You might still be able to get delivery, but delivery times could be a lot longer. You can still fly home for the holiday, but good luck talking to a real person if you need to change that reservation. Or even if you can still book a room at your favorite hotel, you might find there's no cleaning service or free breakfast like there used to be. As you can probably tell, inflation isn't great, and there's not much we as individuals can do to stop it. But there are ways we can manage our own finances so we don't feel its worst effects. First, get into the habit of comparison shopping. Start making a list and checking it twice of the things you buy a lot. Then, as the name suggests, start Googling or searching the shelves for cheaper alternatives, like less expensive cleaning products for your home or drugstore candles instead of those expensive ones, which you already knew were overpriced. Then comes the harder part, cutting back on parts of your budget. We've got a whole guide on how to make a budget, one with accurate and up-to-date prices, and how to stick to it at theskim.com money. So be sure to check that out if you're not sure where to start. And finally, now could be a good time to invest your money. Think of it this way. When your money's in a savings account earning basically no interest, and then there's a year of 6% inflation, your savings are now worth that much less. And with inflation averaging 2-4% to per year, over the long run, that can really add up. By comparison, a well-diversified portfolio could help you earn enough to beat inflation. But we should note, don't make any sudden moves. Take time to think about how much of your money you're willing to allocate to the stock market, instead of investing a lot of your income when you still need that cash. Inflation isn't going away anytime soon, and we'll keep covering its effects on all of us on Skim This. And if you've got other money questions or want some tips on how to manage your wallet, head on over to theskim.com slash money. All right, it's almost time to gather with family around the Thanksgiving table. And if lively conversation turns into a spicy debate, we just might have the tool for you. It's called Ask Delphi. 
Like the famed Oracle of Delphi in ancient Greece, this new Delphi can help answer moral questions that come up in our day-to-day lives. And did we mention she's a robot? Ask Delphi is the brainchild of researchers at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence in Seattle. To train their AI to be able to weigh in on the great debates of our time, such as, can I rob a bank if I need the money? Or can I wear pajamas to a funeral? Researchers compiled a list of 1.7 million challenges people might face. Then they recruited panels of real life humans to pick the moral answer. Those results were then plugged into Ask Delphi's code. Now, Ask Delphi is capable of answering anyone's questions, and she's apparently doing pretty well. Higher judges said they agreed with her answers up to 92% of the time. To get a sense of how impressive it is for AI to do all of this, we called up Li Wei Zheng. She's a PhD student at the University of Washington studying natural language processing, and she's a member of the Ask Delphi team. After initial tests of Delphi, Zheng thought the AI was maybe undertrained until she made a few more tweaks. I tried a bunch of situations by tweaking the sentence. It suddenly grabs much more interesting subtlety of the situations, like ignoring phone call from your friend. It's rude, but if you're in a meeting, then it's okay. But if ignore phone call from your boss, it's bad. Ignore your phone call from your boss. If you are during work, it's okay. This is very surprising because Delphi is able to capture the granularity of situations and it's able to identify very, very subtle implications or contextualizations of the situations. Zheng says, while it's easy for humans to communicate context like that, it's traditionally been hard for AI to recognize those details. And since that initial breakthrough, Ask Delphi has continued to impress, whether it's understanding how to stay safe or some of the finer pleasures in life. It can judge something outside of morality as well. For example, scientific knowledge. It's dangerous to mix ammonia with bleach. Yeah, and it's bad to stick your fingers into power outlet. Yeah, it's dangerous. Oh, my personal favorite is petting a soft cat is enjoyable. Intrigued, the skim this team decided to put Ask Delphi to the test. All right, I'm here with Graylin Brashear and Luke Vargas on my team. And I know that we've all asked ourselves some questions, but Graylin, do you have any questions for the computer? I do, I do. Let's try one that's highly relevant to the shopping season. Is it okay to re-gift something that you got as a gift? Okay, Delphi is pondering. Oh, I have an answer. Delphi speculates that it's rude, which I don't know. I kind of disagree. Yeah, me too. I mean, if they don't know, how could how could it be rude? Yeah, it's it's more like just don't tell someone it's a regift and you're probably fine. Okay. Graylin, do you have any other questions? Yes. Okay. May or may not be highly relevant to ongoing discussions in my own family. Uh, If somebody's driving, shouldn't they be allowed to pick the music? Let's see here. Okay. I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but Delphi says they should be able to pick the music. Obviously. I think that's a leading question, the way it was phrased. (laughs) Isn't it okay? I agree, yeah. (laughs) That's, yeah. That was poorly worded. I'm still taking it to my brother as proof. Yeah, I'm sure he'll accept it as proof. Luke, I think you had some questions for Delphi too. Yeah, and I just can't resist being controversial. So let's try, is it okay to write a lengthy diss track about someone 10 years later? If you're trying to shame Taylor Swift here, I don't know if people are going to be happy with you. 
oh, this is a hot take, but Delphi speculates that it's petty. I think Jake Gyllenhaal would be happy to hear that. Wow. That's, That's the Oracle, so- not those are the Oracle's words, not mine. Let's be very clear about that. Yeah. But if you have to ask the question, you probably agree with it. Okay. I have one final one. I'm going to make this one general so I don't get in trouble, but is it okay to get a college discount 10 years after graduating? Okay. Let's see. I have no idea what you'd possibly be asking, but let's try it. Okay. <laughs> Delphi says it's okay. Oh, wow. Terrific. <laughs> Free pass for, for yeah. another decade, I think, right? Yeah. I mean, you can just say the computer told me to. If Ask Delphi sounds like the right kind of chaos to introduce at your next gathering, we've left a link to Ask the Oracle Anything You Want in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcasts. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. 